This is a recording made in the chapter of the open book and it is number two of a series on the prophecy of Daniel. It is our custom at this meeting to read a portion of scripture together and those of you who are joining in with this study, if you care to switch off for a little while and read together with us the second chapter of the book of Daniel. In our first study of this book of Daniel, <coughs> we notice that the first half of it is past history, and the second half, future prophecy, and it is so written and so arranged that there is a wonderful correspondence. It's written in order to confirm our faith, that God doesn't merely put into the scriptures the most marvellous prophecies that are going to take place thousands of years hence that none of us can test. He says, try me now. And so writing the prophecy of Isaiah, right in the middle of it, before ever you get to the words, comfort ye, comfort ye my people, we have a piece of history lifted out of the book of Kings where Sennacherib, with all his boast, is, as God said, I will put a hook in his nose and send him back where he came. And the God who can do that with a man like Sennacherib can deal with the beast and the antichrist and the false prophet and all the others that will ever come from Nebuchadnezzar down to the very time of the end. We shall have to look at chapter 1 of Daniel when we are looking at chapter 3 in other parts because it anticipates a little bit the nature of the test that is coming in the great day that's not far off, the refusal to worship, for worship is embedded in Satan's uh, attack all the way through. But for a moment, we are going to look at this dream and its interpretation. Now, with regard to prophecy and the prophetic gift, it's mentioned over and over again in the scriptures that that's one of the ways in which God revealed to his prophets by a vision, by a dream. I don't think we ought to be concerned about dreams today. Possibly for two reasons. Well, one is that um, our digestive processes have got so tangled and mixed up with the types of food that we have that if we were interpreting all our dreams, I, I don't know where we should get. And God doesn't speak to us now by dreams. He has given us a complete scripture and that is all sufficient for his people. But he did use and I should imagine, with the way in which people were concerned about a dream, that they were only occasional. They didn't have dreams every night. But when they did have one, it was something to remark about. And in the British Museum, there are cuneiform slabs where they've got interpretations of the things that go to make up a dream or a nightmare. Animals with wings and eyes and claws and everything like you get. They all stand for this or that or the other. And then you find at the court of Nebuchadnezzar there were men who were there all the time. Astrologers and soothsayers and prognosticators all ready with all the apparatus they had to satisfy the mind of a king with regard to the dream. But it looks as though Nebuchadnezzar was conscious that this was something out of the ordinary. You are told when the interpretation is given he said, uh, but, uh, he said, um, thy dream and the visions of thy head upon thy bed are thee. As for thee, O king, thy thoughts came into thy mind upon thy bed. What should come to pass hereafter? 
And of course that's the most natural thing to happen, isn't it? A heathen king is suddenly conscious that the God of this people, quite apart from his own politics and his own military powers, has somehow invested him with authority. How he knew that, we're not sure. But he did know it. He makes a confession of it. And he's told in the dream by Daniel that it is so. One of the most natural things is for him to say, I wonder what's going to happen. Here am I starting, apparently, a new dynasty. And we know from the scriptures that there, in Daniel the first chapter, that third year of the king, that was the first year of Gentile dominion. And so we're not surprised to discover that a whole chapter is devoted to this image that figured so strongly in Nebuchadnezzar's dream. That as I say, it looks as though he hadn't really forgotten it. But when the wise men all gathered round him and said, Oh, but you tell us what you dreamed. We'll give you the interpretation. Oh, yes, because they knew full well that they didn't, what it would mean. And they were wise men. Oh, yes. And if I were in their predicament, I'd given him some interpretation if he'd given me the dream. But there he said, Ah, I know what you're doing. You're wanting to get a bit of time, aren't you? You tell me what I dreamed, and then I'll believe you. And then they gave a testimony, unwillingly and unconsciously. Oh, but they said, no kings ever asked such a thing. This is only in the gods who do not dwell in flesh. And then this captive from Judah, he comes forward, he says, there is a God in heaven who reveals his secrets. I'll tell you what it means. And look at the man's face. He didn't ask, first of all, God to tell him what it meant, and then go in and tell Nebuchadnezzar. He went in and stayed the king's hand, he said, just give me time. And what did he do? He gathered together his three friends, and do you notice that here they are given their Hebrew names, verse 17, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. When they are spoken of again, of course, it's the usual Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. When Daniel is mentioned in that same verse, he's called Daniel. But when he's mentioned in verse 26, his name is called Bethesda. So we've got the heathen names of these four men, and we've got their Hebrew names. And he gathers with these men of his own people uh, desired mercies of the God of heaven concerning this secret. Well, did you know when we read it uh, that um, we're told in the first chapter that I think Daniel uh, was rather liked by Antioch, this man, this charge that was over them. And he was able to get a hearing. Well, now we'll leave all that part of it and we'll look at the actual image and its interpretation by itself. I think we've already reminded ourselves that when it says in verse 4, then spake the Chaldeans to the king in Syriac, now that doesn't mean what it seems to say in our version. It doesn't mean to say that somebody in the House of Commons spoke in English. And we just say, well, surely that's what they would do. No, this is a sign. It simply says, at this juncture in the book, in Syriac, and if you have acquaintance with the language, you will see that Hebrew ceases, and Syriac, which is written in the same characters, begins. Uh, strictly speaking, what we call Hebrew is not the original Hebrew that Moses used. If you see a piece of the original Hebrew that Moses used, the nearest to it is the Samaritan Pentateuch, a Phoenician-looking letter. 
But when the Hebrews came back after 20 years' captivity, they no longer spoke Hebrew, and they adopted the square Hebrew character rather to make themselves distinct, I think, from the Samaritans who kept to the old. But it's all the same to us. The characters are simply symbols, the words are the same. But we now have a change in the language. So now we come to the dream itself. Let's see how it's introduced uh, by Daniel. He says um, very wisely and very rightly in verse 30, But as for me, this secret is not revealed to me for any wisdom that I have more than any living. And you remember that Peter echoed the same sentiment. He says, Oh, don't look upon me that this man stands before you healed for any holiness that I have. It's good for us to see that these were earthen vessels. Daniel was an outstanding witness for God and a very fine man. But it wasn't given to him for anything that he possessed. There was a God in heaven who was using Daniel as he might have used you or me if we'd been on the spot. Uh, that's not discounting, of course, the man's piety and his resolution. Or right, in passing, you do know that these men were what are called eunuchs. And uh, without going intimately into it, it meant to say that they could be pushed about by anybody. I don't know whether you know the difference between a bull and a bullock. Uh, you, you'd soon know if you were in a field with one, but a person who lives in a town is more likely to be afraid of a bullock than a cow. You make a mistake. The bullock is just a piece of beef walking about on four hoofs, that's all. And it would have been almost believable that Daniel would have crumpled up and been afraid, because all that's masculine about him had been removed. So we're not going to stand the pressure of evil, an anti-Christian a domination and all that simply because we're strong-minded. It's something more than that we shall need and the grace of God can equip a poor, frail creature to withstand this mightiest of oppositions. That's a comfort for us, isn't it? All right, we'll leave that part to speak for itself. Now he says, verse 31, Now all king saw is to behold a great image. This great image whose brightness was excellent stood before thee and the form thereof was terrible. Then he goes on to speak and on this <coughs> chart that I have before you, you will see I've just attempted to make a figure. I did not try to <coughs> draw the figure like an Assyrian with curly beard and so on. I just did an ordinary looking person. But I'm sure that Nebuchadnezzar didn't dream a figure like this. It looked a bit more like the Assyrian uh, monarchs you see in the galleries of the British Museum. But that's good enough. The head was of gold. But it didn't continue. There was a degeneration so far as the um, materials were concerned. I don't know whether you've ever humped and carried about lumps of gold. I haven't. Uh, but in the ordinary way we blurt out that lead's the heaviest vessel, the, the heaviest metal. But it isn't by a long way. It used to be possible to see Bars of gold standing on the curb in the city of London. And they were so heavy that no person would run away with them. They didn't get caught. They were loading them into a van. They don't do it quite in the same way now. And the um, specific gravity, if you want it, of gold is 19, silver is 10, brass is 8, iron is 7, and clay is 1. So here we have a top of the image. It's 19 times as heavy at the top than it is at the bottom. 
That's Gentile dominion praise. And then it has another characteristic. It's degenerating all the time. Gold is the most precious of metals, recognized in scripture as such. But it was going to be succeeded by a kingdom that was inferior. Inferior in more ways than one. But the symbol is silver. And while silver is a precious metal, it is not so precious in its symbolism or in its value as gold. And then when we read of brass, that is a mere authorised version translation. They speak in the book of Deuteronomy, I think, of digging brass out of the hills. Well, you don't dig, dig brass out of any hill. You dig copper, and then you smelt it with zinc, and you turn that mixture into brass. So, strictly speaking, it doesn't matter, really, but strictly speaking, this word translated brass is copper. Just copper. But copper is lower in value. And you see, to this very day, we speak in pounds, shillings, and pence. And some of us can remember when the pound was gold, and the shilling was silver, and the penny was copper. So now we've got the sort of just the ordinary steps down in the value of metals. And then it's followed by iron. Well, you notice on this chart that there is a sort of a mist after you get to Rome. I've done that on purpose. That um, we'll go step by step through and let that explain itself presently. Now, first of all, in this this um, chapter two, he was concerned about the latter days and concerned about hereafter. Now, let's look, shall we, at these things. In chapter two forty five, it's picked up again. For as much as thou sawest that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it break in pieces the iron, the brass, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God hath made known to the king what shall come to pass hereafter. That was the burden of his dream and of the explanation. And you might just add to that chapter 7, 19 to 24. Let's get them before us. 7.19 Then I would know the truth of the fourth beast. This is a dream that, Nebi, that um, Belshazzar himself uh, is uh, uh, that Daniel himself has dreamed. And he's concerned about this fourth beast which was diverse from all others. And he goes on to say uh, this reaches right un unto the time of the end. And the ten horns, verse 24 out of this kingdom are ten kings that shall arise, and another shall arise after them, and he, and so on. This is going right on to the time of the end of the ten kings that are coming. And then in chapter 8, verse 19, And he said, Behold, I will make thee know what shall be in the last end of the indignation. For the, at the time appointed, the end shall be. They're very much concerned about the end. Although, of course, they have to see some of the processes that lead to it. It's the end that matters all the time. Then would I know about this last one, says Daniel. And uh, in verse 23, and in the latter time of their kingdom, still using the same expression, and chapter 10, 14, and now I am come to make thee understand what shall befall thy people in the latter days. For yet the vision is for many days. The latter days. 
And we may as well get the last reference, chapter 12, verse 8. And I heard, but I understood not. Then I said, oh my Lord, what shall be the end of these things? So all the way through, there are visions given to one and another, the interpretations go so far, and then you wonder, you have to wait. But the focus all the time is, not to go step by step through every one of them, take them quickly, but all what's coming at the end, that is the object and purpose. Now when we come to look at the various kings that are mentioned here, Nebuchadnezzar, he was succeeded, as we go into the passage in a moment, by Medo, Persia. And it is written concerning Nebuchadnezzar himself, these words in chapter 5, verse 19. This will give you his character. Chapter 5, 19. Uh, let's go to verse eight, 18. And thou, king, the most high God, gave Nebuchadnezzar thy father a kingdom, and majesty, and glory, and honour. And for the majesty that he gave him, all people, nations and languages, trembled and feared before him. Who we would he slew? Who we would he kept alive? But that was not without exception. He wanted to slay three men and put them in a fiery furnace, and he couldn't. But the general statement was he was an absolute monarch. He didn't ask the opinion of anybody. Who we would he slew? Who we would he kept alive? This great Babylon that I have built. He was a king. And you know, that's the only king God will recognize. The only king that he could recognize as an autocrat. Do you know that our Savior is called a despot? In 1 Timothy chapter 6, the king of kings, the lord of lords. It speaks about the blessed and only potentate, that's the word despot. Christ will not have a committee. He will not have to ask the opinion of his counselors. He's king of kings and lord of lords, so is this man. So he's God. Now, of course, no man could bear such a rule. God couldn't give him anything less. And then some, some think that some of these others couldn't have been in the line because they never had the same extent of territory that Nebuchadnezzar had. Well, that cuts too far because that would rule Nebuchadnezzar out as well. You say, why? Well, he, God didn't say to him, Nebuchadnezzar, I'll give you the land of Babylon and Palestine. He said, wheresoever men dwell. But you say, he never ruled over Africa and never heard about America. No. But that's what God gave him. Whether he could rule it or not, another thing. But when our Saviour comes, ask of me. I will give thee the heathen thine inheritance of the uttermost parts of the earth thy possession. So you see, not one of them. Not one of them that was in this succession ever ruled over anything except a very limited area of a kingdom that's yet going to acknowledge Christ as King of Kings. But it was good enough so far as the purpose was concerned. While we're speaking about this, you'll find in the New Testament a number of passages where the word world does not tra translate the word cosmos, but translates the word... Uh, uh, now I'm forgetting the word for the moment... Uh, that's the lapse of memory, isn't it? But you'll find in Hebrews chapter 2, let's look at that one, that will give it to you. 
I have a mind like a sieve, friends, I know, but I didn't happen to put this down to jog the memory. It says here, in verse um, 5, For unto the angels are he not put in subjection the world to come whereof we speak. Well, that is the different word. And that word was used in the Old Testament for what we call the prophetic earth. Not the wide world, but the prophetic earth. And it is bounded by the border of India to Gibraltar. And most of the prophecies of the Old Testament are within that limit. All is outside and will come under the sway of Christ, but they didn't come in the view that we have here. God hasn't forgotten these people, but he kept it within those limits. <coughs> well now, <coughs> speaking about Nebuchadnezzar as an autocrat, you notice in chapter 6 of, eight, of this same book of Daniel, the succeeding king, the king of Persia, king of the Medes and Persians, in chapter 6, uh, where we read in verse 8 and verse 14, And now, O king, establish the decree, and sign the writing, that it be not changed according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which altereth not. Wherefore, king Darius signed the writing, and the decree. Verse 14. And then the king, when he heard these words, was sore displeased with himself, and set his heart on Daniel to deliver him. And he laboured to the going down of the sun to deliver him. But he couldn't. For the men told him, you're under the same rule as we are. You've signed a decree and you can't alter it. Now, Nebuchadnezzar wouldn't have bothered about that. Who we would he slew? Who we would he have kept alive? But he has an inferior kingdom. It's gone down once. You see, it's a, it's a limited monarchy. And then you come, in the order of things, to the brass. Now that is chapter 8, verse 21. Chapter 8, verse 21. And the rough goat, oh, verse 20, the ram which thou sawest, having two horns, are the kings of Media and Persia. And the rough goat is the king of Grecia. King of Greece. We leave that for the time being. We're going to deal with that again later. So now we're getting the succession. We have... Gold, the autocratic king. We have the successor, a double kingdom, Medes and Persians, the silver. And then we have the belly and thighs of copper. And Alexander the Great is the one that succeeded Medes and Persians. It's on record that when Alexander the Great was in Jerusalem, he was very much moved and spared that people because the high priest showed him in the book of Daniel that it was already known that he was coming. You imagine a man seeing in a book that the, that the kingdom that was going to succeed, the Medes and the Persians, was Greece and what that first king was going to do and be. And so here we have this prophecy being unfolded before our eyes. When we come to the third one, the fourth one, we come to a period or a point where we have to be a little bit uh, careful. There are various ways in which Rome is or is not included in the prophecy. There are those who take this to be Rome and nothing else afterwards. 
that Rome and its dominion goes right on through the present period, right up to the time of the end. There are those who see it was Rome, but that Rome was beaten and was succeeded by the Mohammedan power, and so on. There are some who say that it wasn't Rome at all, but at the time our Lord was here, the devil said, all these kingdoms will I give you for its mind again. Well, they didn't mean to say at that very moment it was Satan's. He was the god of this world all the way through. So that's not much of an argument. I remind you of a um, problematic passage that we get in the um, scriptures of John the Baptist. You remember there was a deputation sent to him and said, Thou art now Elijah. And he said, No. That was emphatic enough. So John the Baptist said he was not Elijah. But there's another passage when the question came up. And our Saviour said, If you will receive it, this is Elijah that was for to come. But you see the if. If they had received the king of the kingdom, John the Baptist, we are told at his birth, should go before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah. But they did not receive him. And so he simply there is a symbol and a picture of Elijah who is yet to come. Well now, if Israel had accepted Christ as their king, then Rome would have been the last of the image and the book of the Revelation would have run its course and Rome would have been the, the right down to the feet. Now on the side of that board I've just sketched, although it doesn't show what I wanted to show, that if we're going to put, if we were to plot this figure on a piece of engineering square paper and give just a number of squares for, for the length of reign of Nebuchadnezzar and the length of reign of Persia and the length of reign of Greece and then from Rome down to the present day, well, it wouldn't be even standing on stilts. It would be so abnormal to be silly. That is to say, something has gone astray, gone awry. Not from God's point of view, but from man. They rejected the king. And when our Saviour spoke about the kingdom, he gave the parables of the mysteries of the kingdom, not the kingdom itself. He spoke about a king, somebody going into a far country to receive a kingdom and return. But the world's still going on. The prophetic clock may have stopped. We may now not know just what to fit in and what to leave out. But behind the scenes it's still going on. And one thing is certain, that there's no break in the succession from Nebuchadnezzar through the present day until the time of the end because you get it put like this. Um, in the uh, interpretation, it says in verse 34, Thou sawest till a stone, chapter 2 again, Thou sawest till that a stone was cut out without hands, which smote the image upon his feet, that were of iron and clay, and break them to pieces. Then was the iron, the clay, the brass, the silver, and the gold, broken to pieces together. So that makes it utterly impossible that a any break in that image till this moment. And if you'll turn to the reference again, in verse 45, I think you'll see that the order of the words are different. For as much as thou sawest that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, 
and that he break in pieces the iron, the brass, the clay, the silver, and the gold. So it doesn't matter what order you put them, they're all there together at the end. It's one image from the days of Nebuchadnezzar right through the present time until Christ comes and the kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of our Lord and he shall reign forever and ever, you see? So there it is. Whatever we do with Rome, it's got to find its place and we've got to still find succession, successors. Now supposing we raise this question, uh, how do we know? How should we know? Is there any way of testing whether any particular kingdom is in the line of this Gentile dominion or not? Yes. Instead of making Babylon or Athens or Rome or London or Moscow or New York the key, there's only one city on earth that's the key, that's Jerusalem. And the scripture says, in Luke's gospel, you remember, that Jerusalem shall be trodden down with the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles be fulfilled. So that I'm going to search the earth and see whether the successor of Nebuchadnezzar happened to rule over all the territory that Nebuchadnezzar ruled. I've got to say, did the successor of Nebuchadnezzar dominate Jerusalem? Yes. Medes and Persians did. Did the Macedonian? Yes. Did Rome? Well, are you going to say no? Supposing we ask, you go into a certain territory and you meet a soldier and at another place you meet a soldier. Wherever you go, you meet a soldier. But he's always a Roman. And these people are not Romans. They're Israelites. So the army that's invested that country are not Israelites. They wouldn't be allowed to. They're Romans. Well, supposing, like our Lord, you say, show me a penny. And you say, whose image and superscription is this? Caesar's. Oh, Caesar. Caesar's the emperor of Rome. So you're using his currency and you're being dominated by his military. Well, those two things are pretty well enough, aren't they? To show that this is not a sovereign people. They're under dominion. And who is it that rescues Paul from the mob in the temple of Jerusalem? It's a Roman, the Italian. Who is it that speaks to, to Paul and is amazed to discover that he speaks Hebrew as well as Greek? A Roman. Paul, there's no doubt you can't eliminate Rome. There, in succession. But then in the days of Rome, in the days of Rome, and under a Roman, Christ was crucified. Again, you see, you've got an evidence that Israel were not a sovereign people. They said to Pilate, we are not permitted to put a man to death. So we are coming to you, so that you will pronounce the death sentence. That was the Roman Pilate, Pontius Pilate. The Pharisees and the scribes, they worked on his nerves, and they got the sentence. But he, the Roman, passed it. And then, of course, you remember that even Paul himself, he was a Pharisee of the Pharisees, he was a Hebrew of the Hebrews, yet he was a Roman citizen and he claimed the right to be heard by the chief citizen at Rome itself. And they said, well, as you claimed it, the way you go, that's a Roman's right. So you see, there's no doubt 
that Rome was fulfilling its place in this scheme. Well then, when Christ was rejected and the kingdom went as it were into a certain amount of uh, obscurity, then time ceases to be reckoned. In this book of Daniel we shall have the 70 weeks before us. And if that, as we believe it means, 70 times 7 years, well Daniel goes right back so far that that 70 times 7 years is long over if it's just without a break. But at the offering of Christ we come to one point, at the setting aside of Israel and the destruction of the temple we come to another point, and then comes a gap of, of what, nearly 2,000 years, unmarked. But when the prophetic clock once again starts with Israel on the scene, then those years will be completed. So it's, it's unwise for us to try to find Old Testament prophecy being fulfilled at the present moment. The signs of the times are gathering, and we should have our eyes open to see them. The pieces are being moved on the chessboard once again where they were when the disruption took place nearly 2,000 years ago. You've only got to look round the earth and see the simmering that's going on with Israel in their land and the mingled people around them plotting their destruction. Oh, it's all getting ready. But there's another set of prophecies that sometimes you and I are guilty of neglecting. For the Apostle Paul has written in his epistles what it shall be like in the latter days. The latter days of our calling will go merging on to the latter days of prophetic times. So we've got some link with it, you see, but not in exactly the same way. Now with regard to this degeneration of the battles, uh, sometimes it's rather strange when we read that the feet were made of clay. The feet made of clay. Because this tremendous weight uh, of metal wouldn't stand upright, would it, with feet of clay? I mean, the thing wouldn't stand for five minutes. But there's a little way in which we can discover what the meaning is if you look at verse um, 42 of chapter 2. And as the toes of the feet were part of iron and part of clay, so the kingdom should be partly strong, and our version says, partly broken. But in the margin it puts you wise. Brittle. Now clay, if it's put into a furnace, becomes pottery. And you could have a solid base made of pottery that would stand awake until it was stricken with something, and then it would go to pieces. That's the point. Now here's another feature. You know sometimes we read of little quizzes to children or grown-ups. Find the intruder in this. Beethoven, Bach, Wagner, Shakespeare. Well, Shakespeare, because all the others were musicians. Well, now look, find the intruder here. Gold, silver, copper, iron, pottery. See? Here's Babylon with its meaning coming up on the top. All the way through Babylonianism, it's a substitution of something else. Oh, just as good. Yes, you might say, that's, that's pretty good. That'll stand a tremendous weight. But the one thing it won't stand is the striking of that stone. That'll split it. You remember when they built the Tower of Babel? The significant words are, they had brick for stone. 
try again, right, to represent, and as good as I can get. Always the same. Degeneration. Well, now you discover that the signs of degeneracy are indicated in various parts of Scripture. Um, suppose we look at one or two in the prophecy of Isaiah. The prophecy of Isaiah we have in chapter 25. where we have this um, treading down. The emphasis upon the treading down. But in verse 10, For in this mountain shall the hand of the Lord rest, and Moab shall be trodden down under him, even as straw is trodden down of the Daniel. And then you will find in chapter 5, verse 5 of this same prophecy, these words, Isaiah 5, He's speaking about the vineyard that he planted, which was a picture of the people of Israel, the inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah. Verse 3. Verse 5, and now go to, I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will take away the hedge thereof, and it shall be eaten up, and break down the wall thereof, and it shall be trodden down, and it will lay waste. This treading down that takes place. Again, look at 18, and verse 2. Isaiah 18, verse 2. Woe to the land shadowing with wings which is beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, that sendeth ambassadors by the sea, even in vessels of bulrushes upon the water, saying, Go ye swift messengers to a nation scattered and peeled, to a people terrible from the beginning hitherto, a nation meted out and trodden down. Trodden down. And finally, in this connection, um, chapter 28 verse 18 28 verse 18 and your covenant with death shall be disannulled and your agreement with hell shall not stand when the overflowing scourge shall pass through the end shall you be trodden down by it Jerusalem shall be trodden down and as you read in the papers today, you get armed forces on either side of that one city. Barbed wire running between it and through it. Now, just one other passage. I said in the moment, um, that's all. But uh, there's something else we must see. Chapter 1 of Isaiah. Verse 12. Chapter 1, verse 12. When ye come to appear before me, who has required this of your hand to trample down my courts? Their treading of the courts is used using the same expression. This is a boomerang. What they did is coming back on themselves. They trampled the courts of God. They are to be trampled down as a consequence. How horrible. But our uh, warning. And in chapter 10, verse 6. Chapter 10, verse 6. Verse 5, O Assyrian, the rod of mine anger, and the staff in their hand is my indignation. 
I will send him against an hypocritical nation and against the people of my wrath will I give him a charge to take the spoil and take the prey and to tread them down like mire to the streets. Very self-same word used in chapter 1 is used there again. They trod down in their ignorance and in their hypocrisy the temple of the Lord. It comes back. Well then we've already mentioned this um, problem of succession. Now my history is very, very limited. I do know, well I don't know, but I, I rather subscribe to the idea that it's true, 1066 William the Conqueror. And I remember reading a, a, a little book on history, 1066 and all that, which I don't commend to you unless you've got a bump of uh, the funny boat. But um, I am given to understand by sober and serious historians that from the time of Rome's succession to the time that the Mohammedan power took over Jerusalem and Rome ended was 666 years. Now I can't guess that. I don't know. I'll leave that for you to dig out if you will. It doesn't make any difference whether it's right or wrong. But if it is right, it's only one of those many things which throw a little bit further light upon the characteristics of this great image. Uh, you notice when we are anticipating a little bit in chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold, whose height was, I'm going to put 60, not 3 score, whose height was 60 cubits, and the breadth 6 cubits. You notice it? 60 and 6. Oh yes, it's still got it there. So there is a possibility that that also is a truth. Well now, let's come to the book of the Revelation, chapter 17, for another feature. I should imagine that it's not possible that anybody sitting in this chapel can read, without assistance, the little letters that come under the words at the bottom there, one is. If you can read those, you've got very good sight, friend. And those who are going to have this reduced down to the size of a postcard, uh, well, uh, I should say, I should simply say that they've not got any dots. But you needn't worry, because we shall see what it reads when we come to chapter 17 of this uh, book of the Revelation 10 and 12. I'm not going to say that this is easy to interpret. It's more or less just taking it as it stands for a moment. He speaks about this beast. And he says in verse 10, there are seven kings, five are fallen. Well now again, you see, here's an opportunity for us with our knowledge of history and all the number of different kings that have been suggested that are mentioned here. Well, I've got my suggestion. You look down this image. One, two, three, four, five are fallen. When did John say those words? He said, I was taken in spirit to the yet day of the Lord, and in the day of the Lord, five of these constituent parts of the Gentile dominion will have already fallen. One is, that's the one that's at present, number six. The other is not yet come, that's number seven, but he's a substitute, and the true number seven is the stone without hands that smites the image and grinds it to powder. Now, when you get to the, when you get to the, um, 
the pottery at the base of this, you're reminded that there are ten kings. There are ten toes. And in the days of these kings, so here we have five are fallen. One is, the other is not yet come. And when he comes, he's immediately disposed of by the true number seven, king of kings and lord of lords. There's one other feature in Daniel 2 that I think I ought to uh, ask you to notice. And that is one reference with regard to these kings. Then we shall have to leave it until we pick it up again next time. Daniel 2, verse 42. And as the toes of the feet were part of iron and part of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. And whereas thou sawest iron mixed with miry clay, they, now it doesn't say who, they, but presently in verse 44, in the days of these kings, they, because we're down at the feet of the image, they shall mingle themselves with the seed of men, but they shall not cleave one to another, even as iron is not mixed with clay. What did it mean? Well, I read one book that said, this means the communists. Well, I'm not a communist, friends, but I should have to admit if there was a communist sitting in this pew and there was a Tory at the other end, I should say, well, I don't believe either of you, but you're both men. This says, when you get down to this, you move from metal to pottery, and these will not mingle with the seed of men. Nebuchadnezzar was a man, that's all. Every Everyone in this image up to that moment has been ordinary men. Now we've got the di diabolical element coming in the book of the Revelation. We've got Satan beginning to have his emissaries, and these ten kings will be at his disposal. They shall not mingle with the seed of men. They're contrary, they're different. So at last there'll be pandemonium in the strictest meaning of that word on the earth. But it'll be short because the days are, are numbered. And in the days of these kings, he doesn't describe these kings, he goes on to speak about ten horns and ten toes and whatnot later. And in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed, always the contrast. And then finally, when you go back to that incident that we remember where we forget so much of our early days, what little Bible teaching I had, I didn't know much. But I did know about David, who went down to the battle, and his elder brothers were there, and they looked at their young brother, as elder brothers do, and say, Oh, you've left your few cattle and come down to see the battle. And he said, What's this man's? What's this man doing outside here, blaspheming God? Is no one in the army of Israel going to take him up? Ooh, they weren't thinking about taking that man up. He was Goliath, the giant. So young David is taken into the presence of King Saul. And David said, The Lord delivered me out of the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear. You delivered me out of this too. And then Saul did what most worldly wise people do. He put his own armour on David. He must have looked a bit of a fool, mustn't he? A stripling with the armour on of a man who stood head and shoulders above the rest of his people. And then, of course, he had to be polite. He said, oh, I said, uh, 
I'll put it off. I don't, I don't think I use it. I'm not, I haven't any practice at it. And what did he use? He took five smooth stones out of a brook. I don't know why five. I don't understand it all, friends. But a smooth stone has not been shaped by any arsenal on earth, has it? It's just nature, isn't it? The stone cut out without hands. You see? David takes a stone cut out without hands and Goliath is no more. Surely that picture in the beginning of David's uh, history is foretelling the end, long before there was a Gentile king in view. Isn't it good to know that even with complicated passages like prophecy must be? It's written for our learning. And not that we should go out and become sort of old Moore's almanacs and try to prophesy what's going to take place, but we can stand and say, God has committed himself. He's challenged us in the scriptures. Especially when they were bowing down to gods of iron and stone. He says, can any of them tell you things that are to come? Challenge me and ask me. And prove me. Well, here we have it. Those who have taken a critical attitude to the book of Daniel, they said that he said some things which have so intimately come to pass, that is to say were the days of the um, Antiochus and so on, then it must be a fraud, it must have been written afterwards. Well, they are standing in the same shoes as the men who said, who ever heard of anybody interpreting a dream that never heard? So they're only giving credit to this wonderful book. Here is God, looking down the age, and he can tell you without failure the successing dominions that are coming until the day comes when his son will break this terrific stranglehold upon mankind and set the prisoner free. We look beyond the long dark night as we say and hail the coming day. So if we get nothing out of these studies except an uplift of our hearts to be conscious that God is true, that <coughs> prophecy is just history written in advance, we just go on humbly holding his hand, walking sometimes in the dark if needs be, but taking courage from these Old Testament witnesses that God is faithful and whatsoever he has said must ultimately come to pass.